I'm Professor Neil Feinstein, and this is Conversations with the Creators. Sponsored by St. John's Master's Program in Integrated Advertising Communications, ideas thrive here. Today's podcast is re- is very, very special because we are talking to Chief Marketing Officer at Hulu, author and master storyteller Scott Donatin, who is a St. John's CCPS graduate. Scott graduated with a journalism degree and worked at many important publications, including Entertainment Weekly. And even back then he was creating content and at some point switched from editorial to advertising. And then as he talked about in one of his videos, connected experiences. So Scott has built a career that intersects entertainment and advertising and is a shelf full of the most prestigious awards in the industries. But I can't possibly do his amazing career any justice. So instead of me walking you through what he's done and how he's gotten there and his point of view on the world, which has um, many twists and turns, as many twists and turns as the road to Hana and Maui, I'm gonna let Scott do it. Scott, welcome, welcome, and thank you for taking time for- Thank you, Neil, thank, thank you for having me. You're welcome, I'm, I'm glad to have you. So, so tell us how you got from Queens, New York, <laughs> to what, are you in LA, Los Angeles? I'm in LA now. Yep, in Venice, California. Tell us how you got from Queens, New York, to Los Angeles. It's it's fascinating. Sure. Yeah. No. Thank you. It, it's uh, um, I, I was actually born in Queens, uh, raised mostly in Brooklyn, uh, and um, uh, went to St. John's, as you mentioned. And for, for better or worse, I wanted to be a writer of some kind from about third grade on. When I think a teacher I had. Um, commented uh, favorably on a, on a limerick that I wrote in class. Uh, and, and I kind of like, I, I was the editor of my high school newspaper. I, I joined the torch at St. John's on my second day on campus and basically never left that office for four years. I was uh, the editor uh, of the torch for the last, for my junior and senior uh, years, uh, which, was, which was amazing and, and such a great uh, part of my education. I majored in journalism. And, and I also um, landed in, in the way that a lot of people do almost accidentally a, uh, an internship. It really was a part-time job more than an internship at Advertising Age, a trade magazine covering the advertising, marketing, media business. Uh, and long story longer, I'll, I'll, I'll speed it up but on that part, but ended up joining Ad Age full-time right out of uh, St. John's uh, as a reporter uh, and rose up to... Um, uh, uh, be the editor of, of interactive and new media, as we called it in the early days of digital, really dating myself, but helped AdAge go online in the early 90s, uh, built our first website after being initially on 
kind of AOL and, and uh, some of the walled gardens, yes. eWorld, which yes. was Apple's uh, prodigy, which, prodigy. Was, which was owned by IBM and Sears. I'm really dating myself now. Um, I, I worked when I was at J. Walter Thompson and prodigy was our client. I remember when we got to one million users, it was a big event. <laughs> I'm sure it was. Um, so anyway, then, then, um, uh, left that age briefly to go over to News Corp to launch the uh, online edition of TV Guide, on, uh, TV Guide, which at the time was the largest print magazine in the country with a circulation of over 20 million. Uh, and, and then a year later, Ad Age lured me back um, to become the editor, the executive editor, and then the editor. And I spent 10 years editing Ad Age. And, and really, that was the such a, such a crucial part of my career because um, a role like that meant that I had a kind of uh, bird's eye view of many industries that were interconnected and was talking to people who often weren't talking to each other. And so uh, was started to be able to, you know, spot trends early on and, and people would kind of pick up on, oh, how do you do that? And it's like, well, I'm just, I'm no magic to it. I'm just having conversations with 10 people and realizing they're all talking about the same thing before they realize it. Um, and I'm pulling those pieces of string together into, into one, one thing. Uh, and one of those things was um, the emergence of, um, without going too deep on it, every media technology that started coming along in the mid nineties on was about putting the end user, the consumer, the viewer uh, in charge of the information flow rather than the creators and distributors of, of that information. And I realized that one of the things that would be bad for and would disrupt was traditional interruptive forms of advertising. Uh, and started thinking about, okay, as the editor of Ad Age, if, if, if advertising in its, in its interruptive format, which we always knew people didn't really like, uh, was going to be disrupted by new technologies, how might brand marketers communicate uh, you know, and reach audiences? And, and the idea that I became uh, kind of obsessed with was this idea that brands could actually tell stories that were worthy of people's time. Um, and that they could create and tell stories in formats where people would actually seek them out, share them, and choose to spend time with that content rather than be interrupted by it. And so I started something called Madison and Vine within Ad Age, which was a, a newsletter and a section and conference series. That, and I wrote, yeah. a, wrote, wrote a book about that. And so that kind of became a little bit my calling card. And uh, I, I ended up at, at age moving at a certain point the, our publisher was retiring and the owners came to me and said, we know you, you're a journalist and you want to be the editor. You probably don't want to be the publisher, but think about it not as leaving journalism, but as helping to figure out the future models that will define journalism. Because at the time, you know, we were moving things like Ad Age from thinking of themselves as a print magazine and to think of themselves as a brand that could be expressed to audiences in any way that they wanted it to be, whether that's digitally, whether that's through events and conferences or even education or, you know, how, how could that brand serve its role in people's lives? So I, so I went over and became publisher of Ad Age. And then about a year into that, got a call from Entertainment Weekly asking if I would like to be publisher of EW. Um, and I was like, yep, absolutely. <laughs> would love to do that. I'm, I'm such a pop culture fan. And so it felt like, um, you know, exactly where I had been pointed without knowing it. Um, and then after a couple of years doing that, I was approached by an ad agency that said, hey, you've been talking about this um, branded content, you know, brand storytelling thing. And, and uh, all of our clients are asking us how we do it. And we don't know. Why don't you come help us figure it out? It's, you know, it's, in essence, what, what somebody said to me, which, which ended up being the hook that pulled me over was 
stop thinking of yourself as an observer and come be a participant. Basically put your money where your mouth is. Um, so I did that and that led to a 10 year uh, career on the agency side at two different agencies, uh, which, which going from being chief content officer and helping brands create documentaries and do long form storytelling, um, comedy series, uh, and, and eventually led to being a chief creative officer, uh, overseeing all traditional creative as well as branded content. Uh, and then I got a call from Hulu, uh, where I've been for a year and a half now to come uh, lead their creative team and help you know, create all of the uh, great materials that market their shows and their brand, uh, our shows and our brand now, uh, and, uh, and also work with our advertising partners to create great branded content. So um, uh, went over to Hulu and uh, a little more than a year after I got there, I was asked to step up into the job leading all marketing. And here I am. Congratulations! <laughs> Sorry, that was a, that was a, that was a, that was a long way at it. It's a, it's a great well from a storyteller. That's a great story, <laughs> and I think it would be inspiring to our St. John students to see how. Um, what what I think is so interesting is where is is the twists and turns is the fact that you know you didn't you started someplace but you just went where where the world took you and I think what really fascinates me is is. Um, you know, listen, we, we talk a lot about the fact that advertising is not effective anymore. And we have all kinds of statistics and data out there to say that people are avoiding advertising. People are paying for services like Hulu so they don't have to see advertising. But yet you, you talk a lot about the idea of content. And I would love to explore that just a little bit before we go um, in another direction. What, what, can you like clearly define the difference between advertising and content and tell me why advertising, do we need advertising and is content taking over? We, we do need advertising. It still plays a very important role and it works, but advertising, um, if you think about it for over a hundred years has really been defined um, by interruption and intrusion. Those sound like judgmental words and to some degree they are, but they're also just facts. Um, and what that basically means is I'm watching a show or I'm reading an article um, and that, I, that I have sought out. I've decided I want to read this article. I've decided I want to watch this show. And then I'm interrupted in that process by an advertiser who stops the story that I'm, that I'm consuming in order to talk about themselves. And by the way, that model is very important because it, it has subsidized uh, our media experiences for 100 years, and it continues to do so for a lot of people. As you mentioned, there are a lot of people who are fortunate enough, and I, I'm among them, to be able to pay a premium in order to skip the advertising experience. In essence, I'm subsidizing my own experience now, um, but there are a lot of people economically who can't do that, and, and the advertising model plays a really important role uh, for them. The majority of, of Hulu subscribers are still ad-supported subscribers. And, and advertising works. It works as a way to build awareness. It works as a way to create desire. Um, and Hulu itself is a big media advertiser, and we know that it works. It helps acquire customers. It helps you know generate excitement. Um, but we also know that people have never really liked it. And, and, and before, they, before digital you know, they, there was always a sense that, hey, they go to the bathroom during the commercial break or they go make a sandwich during the commercial break were the two kind of often most used examples of it. And of course now it's, you know, um, they, they just skip commercials. And, and if you go back to like the creation of DVRs uh, and that ability to suddenly say, I'm gonna just uh, fast forward through a commercial or just hit skip altogether, um, 
that was a major argument in the ad industry, by the way. If, if you fast forward through it, you still might have to see my brand name slide by as right, you do that. Five, if you, if you hit skip, right. If you the hit skip all together. That, pod, that, that, that commercial pod was so important, the research said, because people right. back up and watch right. that. Now, branded content at its heart is the idea that I, as a brand, I'm going to create something that you as an audience member are going to do the opposite of you're going to treat the way you treat other stories that you let into your lives you're going to seek it out or share it or be intrigued by it when you come across it and choose to spend time with it um look it's actually if sometimes people think are we talking about product placement um no although that was part of the early uh, kind of the crudest forms of it in some ways and it, it can be effective in its own way and product placement actually interestingly goes back to renaissance painting and there was a Renaissance painter who used to put the dress designs of his brother-in-law, the you know <laughs> dressmaker, uh, into uh, onto the people he was painting. Um, but one of my favorite examples of branded content, uh, which, which is also over a hundred years old uh, right now, is is the Michelin Guide. What a lot of people don't realize is the Michelin Guide was started, I think, in 1900 in in France at a time when there were. Uh, 3,000 um, cars on the road in France uh, and people who bought cars didn't actually know what to do with them. They'd go out for leisurely drives without a destination um, uh, in them. Uh, there were 3,000 cars and Michelin Guide printed 30,000 copies of a guide and Michelin was and is a tire maker. And we forget that now. We think, oh, I'm eating at a Michelin starred restaurant. It's a tire maker. that's mm -hmm. telling you to eat at right. some of the best restaurants in the world. What it really was was I'm going to give you places to drive to that are worthy of a drive. And Michelin stars were, were the idea one, two, and three was whether or not it was worth um, a stop, you know, while you were already out doing something else or whether it was a destination in and of itself. Um, but, but that was a great way of like, just imagine I, we didn't try to sell you more tires. We tried to get, give you more reasons to drive so that you would wear your tires down so that you would need new tires eventually. Um, today, what that looks like in a lot of different ways, and I can give you some examples. Um, sure. uh, Denny's, uh, one of the first things that I was lucky enough to be a part of creating was for uh, Denny's, uh, which had, you know, was, is open 24-7, uh, 365, uh, and really at the time was not seen as that relevant among younger people. Families, yes, younger people, no. And yet what Denny's wanted was for younger people to think of it as America's diner, as the place that you maybe go to at two in the morning after you've been out with your friends and you get that late breakfast or early breakfast uh, or, or late cheeseburger um, and just sit around and kind of, you know, shoot the bowl with, with your friends. Um, but they didn't have that reputation. So we created for them a comedy series with Jason Bateman and Will Arnett where uh, the actor Dave Keckner basically interviewed all these different uh, comedians, including Sarah Silverman and Chris Pratt and Will Arnett and Jason did episodes and Amy Poehler. Uh, and, and they sat in a Denny's and ate a meal and, and just talked. They never talked about the fact that they were in Denny's. They never talked about the food they were eating. Um, and yet Denny's was an ever present character in the whole thing. And they just had an improv comedy discussion and by the way, what's amazing is some of the things that came out of that, that they said, uh, Sarah Silverman tells a, a, a joke that ends up essentially being about anal warts uh, yeah. while eating food in a Denny's. And you can imagine that if their traditional ad agency had gone and said, hey, we're going to do a commercial. We got Sarah Silverman to be our spokeswoman and she's going to talk about anal warts while she eats your food, they'd be fired. 
right? That agency would be showing them. And yet, in this case, we won an award at Cannes for what we had created. And what we had created was a comedy series that that people loved, that young people loved, that ran um, uh, on Funny or Die and was just this, uh, you know, uh, great series. Um, uh, and, and people ate it up by the millions every episode. And within a year, the um, favorable impression of Denny's among 18 to 24 year olds had gone up dramatically with no other marketing against them. And Denny's has actually continued to do a lot of great marketing against that audience. But all it was was, hey, this is this is fun. This is funny. The, the jokes are great. The comedy's great. And by the way, you're getting the message that, hey, Denny's is a cool, fun place to go hang out. So you know, since that, I've created a documentary with BMW about them building the first uh, bobsled that the U.S. The, what really was was a story that the U.S. team had not won a medal in bobsled at that point in over 50 years, um, and uh, had inferior technology. And they turned to BMW and asked, "Can you build us a better bobsled?" And BMW said, "We don't know. Let's try." Uh, and it wasn't necessarily a smooth and easy process, but they got there and and. And the U.S. team did win its first medals uh, at that at, the, at that Olympics in Sochi. So we did a documentary that was about that, including the ups and downs and the frustrations of that process. And that that ran as part of NBC's Olympics programming package. So it go it really at the end of the day, just can can brands tell stories that connect to their values or what they do in a way that audiences will will actually say, "I want to watch that. I want to spend time with that." And you do do me a favor and take me inside the pitch room of Denny's, where you're. Are you are you the are you an ad, are going in as an ad agency now? Or, yeah, interestingly, I, I I was at a I was at a, a an awards dinner, an industry awards dinner, and it, and I was sitting at a table, bought by Interpublic, which was the parent company of the ad agency that I worked at. And there were people from about five or six different interpublic agencies sitting around that table. And at one point, um, one guy asked me what I do. And I told him and he said, oh, I, I run this other agency inside interpublic. And one of our clients is Denny's. And they keep asking us if we what about this branded content. And we don't really know what they're talking about. Can you help us? Okay. <laughs> and so, so we got in a meeting and we sat down. And, and you know, what, what I always begin with um, and there's a great, uh, I, this is not my invention, uh, there's, a, there's a great TED talk by uh, a amazing guy named Simon Sinek yes. called Start With Why. And yes. start, start With Why to me has become, you know, the center of everything. Does a brand know its why? Not, you know, his point is that, that every, every company knows what it does or every brand knows what it does. Some, some of them know how they do it, but very few of them, uh, more of them today, thankfully, in part because of him, um, understand their why. What yes. role do they play in people's lives, and and what is their biggest marketing challenge? And that was the conversation we started having with with uh, Denny's, and we realized again it was this idea that like we we are we don't feel relevant to younger people, um, but we think we actually could be a great you know destination uh, for for them and play this role in their lives. What's the best way to communicate that? Um, and so we thought comedy is obviously a great way to reach that, a great way to reach any human, but definitely sure. a great way to reach a younger audience. Um, happened to know at the time that Jason and Jason Bateman and Will Arnett had um, formed a company specifically to work with brands on creating comedy. Um, and they had done one thing at the time for Orbit Gum, which was, um, uh, which was actually quite good. 
And so, you know, we called them up and a couple of other people. And basically as an agency, we then briefed them and say, here's what we're looking to do. How, what's a good way to use comedy? What's good. And, and they came back with this idea of, of this improv kind of talk show. And Jason Bateman said, Hey, look, there's people don't know it, but there are hundreds of local TV stations around the, the country that do what they call like chat and chew formats where you, you go sit yeah. and eat breakfast with the host and talk about your new movie or your new show and let's just take that chat and chew format and, and stick it in a Denny's. Um, and, and that's what we did. And, uh, you know, it, it's a leap of faith though, when, when you get a brand to do that. And I have to say Denny's client, um, it doesn't sound brave. It sounds, is, 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 a, is an exaggerated word to use, but it, it's, it's kind of bold if you're a CMO of any brand and you're being asked to be accountable for the efficiency of every marketing dollar you spend, you already have models that tell you if I spend X amount on a 30 second television spot sure. that runs inside prime time, it will do this for my business. There were no models that told them what producing 10 minute comedy segments um, and running them. I said, funny or die early. I'm going to apologize if anybody listens to this, who was involved in that project, it was collegehumor.com, which was funny or die's competitor um, uh, that actually uh, ran that series and created it with us. So, Apologies to my friends at College Humor uh, at the time, but anyway, uh, for Denny's, it was it was you know a brave, and, and they were and they were very much like let's try this uh, without knowing whether it would work, and it did work, and they and they went on, and I, I was actually I never I never worked directly with them on any other projects, although I came close to creating a reality show in a twenty four hour Denny's, well they're all twenty four hour, but in a Denny's in downtown Las Vegas which had a wedding chapel, uh, among, other, among other things. And we were going to create a workplace comedy reality series that would have been shot in, in that Denny's with all of the, imagine all the wacky characters who both work at and visit uh, Denny's in downtown Las Vegas between midnight and 8 a.m. every day. That would have been a very fun show. We didn't get it made in the end. But, um, but Denny's went on to do a lot of, and they still continue, uh, and they still have some of the same marketing people there to do some, some great brave marketing. And they've often said that that, that first um, thing we created always open uh, was, uh, was their entry into realizing that they could, you know, do this and it could really uh, have an impact on their business. And the, and they have, I mean, it now is, it now is definitely in the consideration set of anybody who's been partying till 2am and wants to go out and get, and and get a, some scrambled eggs or hamburger. Um, <laughs> exactly. It, so it's really interesting to me because you have to, you know, what what um, Jason Bateman and Will Arnett had was an environment that they could come up with this idea, the idea of of creating an environment um, that inspires. So that I mean, you know, and your whole career whether you were running a magazine, running a publication, let me call it a publication really, because magazines, you know, it's more than a magazine nowadays. Um, whether you were running a creative department, a content department, um, you have to inspire people. And so it's important to, to build out a culture. So we, when, we, when we originally spoke, you talked a little bit about um, where Hulu was when you got there, where Hulu is now, and how the culture has changed. I'm wondering if we could explore that a little bit. Talk to me a little bit about the history of Hulu. Sure. Yeah. Hulu started, um, it, it, in a way, I, I say that, and I wasn't there at the time, although I uh, uh, visited them and understood the story as a journalist uh, at the time. 
was that um, essentially the TV uh, networks, the major broadcast TV networks at the time, ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, had watched what happened, the digital disruption, how it had impacted the music industry's bottom line, which was essentially piracy was killing the recorded music industry um, in, in, and early on in the digital age before Spotify and, 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 and the like um, kind of came back and gave, gave a new model uh, to the music industry. And I think that the TV industry began to realize that, that the same thing could happen to them, that essentially people might start taking their episodes and putting them out free online. And so they decided to get ahead of it and say, um, we'll just create a, a website where we, uh, the day after we air a TV show uh, on ABC or NBC, or the, well, the next day you can watch it on, on, you know, on a digital device. Um, you don't have to steal it. We'll give it to you, right. <laughs> you know, and eventually that became, we'll sell it to you. You'll subscribe and we'll, you'll get some other benefits around, around that. Um, and so, so Hulu began as next day TV. And when that, that was, this is, you know, um, uh, 13 years ago, uh, you know, not that long ago, this was still the idea of like on demand was still a, not a really, uh, well-known can concept. Can I connect back to something we talked earlier? Were they built, were sure. they, were they, um, embedding commercials into that on-demand TV back to our earlier conversation, you know, interrupting yes. somebody as they're having whatever experience they choose to have. Yeah. And you can imagine even with advertisers, this was a big conversation then to say, um, you know, advertisers were like, wait, we want the largest possible audience at one time. We want people to watch it when it's on NBC. Now you're suddenly saying, if you don't watch it Wednesday night at nine, you can watch it Thursday at eight. What? <laughs> you know? And that um, impacts the payment model too. And that impacts the payment model. And eventually, you know, Hulu, um, you know, began to evolve and then became, you know, an app as it is now, a digital app that, you know, you would watch uh, as likely on your television or your mobile phone as, you know, on a computer. Um, and with multiple models, you can, you, can, you can get it with advertising, you can pay a premium and get it without advertising. Um, and, you know, that I think is ultimately that kind of consumer choice proved to be a really important uh, part of, part of the mix uh, for Hulu, but it really you know evolved and, and it was always owned by a combination of several uh, of the largest media companies in the world. And and it was interesting because I, I think I, you know again I wasn't there at the time, but they necessarily didn't want Hulu to succeed too much because that would disrupt what they thought of then as their core model. Um, and then they began to realize, hey, this thing's really happening. <laughs> and, we, and we're sitting and we, we actually created the first streaming service almost accidentally in that way. <laughs> um, and, and then as streaming began to take off, Hulu began to really take off um, and began to create originals like The Handmaid's Tale, which gave people their own reason to be there, became known a lot less for um, uh, Next Day TV, although still an important uh, thing for a lot of our audience but also for a place for a deep library of content and for original content that they couldn't get uh, anywhere else. And, and then about uh, two, uh, almost two and a half years ago now, um, Disney, which was always one of the owners when Disney acquired Fox, it acquired um, majority ownership and operating control of, of Hulu. And so Hulu went from being a quasi independent uh, company into now being part of the Walt Disney company. And, and with that has been, uh, you know, uh, all of the things that, that happen uh, in, in when, when that happens, which is the Hulu culture, which was very strong and is, is still very strong, you know, began to realize, okay, how does that kind of evolve and get redefined? 
um, in being, you know, now we're part of a Disney streaming group along with Disney Plus and ESPN Plus. Um, how do we how do we evolve that into what are we now as part of Disney streaming and the world's largest storytelling company? And and those moments can be, you know, those transitions have some difficulties attached to them as people adjust to. Um, you know, shifting and still realizing, oh, at the end of the day, it, Hulu is still an amazingly strong brand and business with an incredible future. And it's also part of the Walt Disney Company. And that's all a great thing. And how do we kind of take advantage of, of building a new, um, a new sense of who we are that keeps the very distinct idea of Hulu as a strong brand, but also builds an idea of Hulu as a part of something bigger than itself, like the Disney bundle uh, that we, you know, um, offer to consumers where they get, you know, get all of these services that allows us to tap into all of the other studios and networks like FX, you know, which create amazing content to become now uh, content creators and partners for Hulu and help redefine what we are. So I, I got to Hulu about six weeks before um, Disney really, Disney had already taken um, the, the operating control, but it began to begin the full integration of Hulu uh, into Disney. And so I, I feel like I've been there at this kind of uniquely uh, pivotal moment in Hulu's history. Um, and it's been fascinating to be a part of that. Well, yes, I've worked with Disney in the past. I mean, it's an incredibly strong culture. And people who work there are very passionate about it, as passionate as the brands. Did you... Did, is, is there a culture clash going? Is Hulu kind of maintaining its own unique culture that has facets of the Disney culture? Or, you know, or is this still an evolving story? You know, it, it, it's evolving from one thing in, into another. And I would say, I think one of the important things is to understand what, what culture really is in a company. I think sometimes people think that perks or benefits or names of how you name things is culture. And those can be nice things to have, by the way. I'm not, but they can be actually crucial things to have, especially for, for younger uh, people. Uh, they're a very important part of the company you choose to be a part of, but they're not culture. Culture is ultimately the people that you come to work with every day and the way you behave and the values um, that you create and, and express and live together. Um, and I think in that way, our culture is as strong as it's ever been. And I think that, you know, the identity of, of kind of people, it comes from such a great place. They had such a strong love of Hulu um, and, and they still do. And they want to continue to express that and, and understand how you express that, but how you also take pride in understanding that it's such a, like, especially in a world where everything is beginning to uh, roll up and consolidate. Um, and every, every article that is produced about the streaming space and what, and the evolution of media, you know, uh, predicts that Disney will be the number one or no, you know, one of the top two uh, media companies, entertainment companies uh, in sure. the world. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that in in the streaming space and the most exciting thing? But um, you know that that still is a redefinition to tell people: yes, you still are part of Hulu, but you're also part of Disney streaming, and that's a great thing. We we are. Um, I am the advertising department at St. John's, the mass, um, the com arts department. We are all the journalism department. We are all part of the di uh, division of mass communication. And one of the conversations that we have all the time is the power of media in this world today. Is it is it is it the force that is driving so much? And you talked earlier on uh, on about how 
pop culture is something that's been important to you, pop culture and media. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? How important media is to the world we live in or? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, to me, it all comes back to, and, and, uh, and you used this word early on in your introduction of me, storytelling. And in fact, some yeah. people look at my career and they say, you look like you've had three different careers and I'm like, at heart, every, every job I've had, and by the way, my jobs aren't that diverse. It's not like I went from being you know, a plumber to a pilot to a, <laughs> but, but at heart, every one of the jobs I've had has been about how do, you, how do you tell stories that are worthy of people's time and how do you get them to gather around those stories? How do you get them to come back uh, to you time and again uh, to hear and see those stories? My, my marketing vision internally at Hulu, I often talk to our marketing team and say, Hulu is a campfire and humans have been gathering around campfires for thousands of years. And, and actually, you know, when, when, when we learned how to control fire, we kind of created space for storytelling because before that, a lot of communication people had during, was during the day and it was about the working and the hunting and where, you know, where are we going to hunt? And, where, and, and when the campfire came along, they could suddenly extend their day and sit around at night and, and talk to and tell tales to each other. Um, and storytelling is so deeply, I, I sometimes worry that when, when I talk about storytelling, especially when I was talking to brands about branded content, early on that, that it feels like it could be a squishy word um, uh, as opposed to a hard business word of like, you know, um, uh, what, you know, return on investment and, and key performance indicators. And then, yeah, yeah. you know, I would come sure. in during new business pitch and be like story, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and I, think, I think sometimes it, 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 it seemed a little bit, but, but here's the thing about, and there's a great book called the storytelling animal that I, that I love. And you realize that like, the part of the human brain that processes story is the same part that's responsible for decision-making and loyalty. And the rational part of the brain, which most marketers think is the one they should be appealing to, is ultimately the one that justifies decisions that the storytelling brain wants right. to make. So, right. you know, story, story is so key to who we are as humans. It's how we basically take a series of random things going on around us and, and apply a narrative to them to prevent ourselves from going insane, basically, uh, right. by the randomness of it all. Uh, so I think, I think it's really, I, I go back to those two things. What is your why? And your why is your story. Um, and as long as I can apply that to anything I do in life, that's kind of, you know, where, where I uh, get my thrills. I was in a um, program earlier this summer with, and one of the speakers was the chief marketing officer of um, MasterCard, who was brilliant. And he talked a little bit about how we are moving from storytelling to experiential and story making, which I thought was a really interesting spin on this thing because storytelling involves your mind, but when you're story making, your whole, your whole being is part of it. Yeah, there was an ad agency that used the phrase "story doing" at one for a while. I don't know if it caught on, but I think it, I think I think the basic idea there, which I get at the end of the day, is like you can't tell a story unless unless you live it, unless you act that way, unless those are actually your values and your actions in the marketplace. And I do remember early on in in my work in the agency side, there was one company that I was talking to, and they said, "So if we don't if we don't know our story, can we make it up?" And it was like, no, 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 <laughs> no we, can, we can look harder for it. We can discover it. <laughs> Definitely. There's a reason that people buy your product. You, you play a role in their lives. I remember a fascinating Anthony Zyker, the creator of CSI, 
once um, had a conversation with a client of mine at Johnson and Johnson at the time about band-aids. And he said, you know, is a band-aid an adhesive strip for minor wounds or is it the courage to try again? Is it me falling off my bicycle as a kid, scraping my knee, going inside, crying? Mom puts the band-aid on, cleans it up, puts the band-aid on and I go back out and get back on, you know, and that's like, there are stories can be found in, in the most mundane, you know, on the surface brands there are, but, but you have to actually be authentic uh, to that. And that's what the idea of story making or story doing is, is about is, 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 is the experience of the brand the same one, because if you tell a story and then the consumer experience of, of, of that brand is, is different from that story, you're dead. Right. Brilliant, brilliant. And, and yes, thank you. So I have one last question. Now, I see we're coming to our end. I know you have a busy day. Um, you are a St. St. John's graduate. We've now got a whole bunch of students who are listening to you and probably in awe, and you will probably get lots of LinkedIn requests <laughs> shortly. Um, what is the one piece of advice you would give them Here's your chance. Here's your megaphone. Tell them what tell them what they need to know as they as they prepare to do battle in the real world. You know, maybe maybe this goes into the idea of uh, and again, thank you for having me be part of this because I haven't done that much with St. John since I left there, but it's such an important part of my life. I grew up in a family of immigrants and and dock workers, longshoremen, and uh, you know, cops, and 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 I would think I was only the second person in my family to go to college and. And, you know, it's, it's been obviously was, was my launching pad uh, in so many ways. But I also think it's about, um, it goes back to storytelling and story doing, which is, uh, I said earlier that I walked into the torch on my second day on campus. And I think that, you know, um, uh, don't, you know, learn about what you love, but do, do it as well, as quickly as you can. And if there are ways to get involved on campus or off, um, I think while you're in college with actually doing the thing that you're studying, um, that, that to me was that real key mix of, of what I was learning in classes and how I was getting to apply it. You know, I was taking journalism classes and then I was writing articles um, that were being published, you know, for you know, 20,000 people a week, uh, et cetera. So I, I think it's about like, uh, and, and just pursue your passions. It sounds overly simplified, but I've never, I've never taken any job. I've been lucky enough to never have to take any job just for, uh, money or for the step it might be that if I take this job, it leads to this next step. I take jobs based on the idea of like, do I actually want to wake up and do this every day or most days <laughs> at, at the least? Um, am I passionate about this? And, and is this something I want to wake up and do every day um, is something that I uh, think about all the time because I, I and I, it sounds simple, but I know some people who are a little more calculated and that's okay if that works for them, but they're a little more calculated in analyzing where is the most advancement opportunities, where are the most you know, opportunities to make money. And that's great for people who make that decision. I was always about, you know, what am I gonna be the most passionate doing? I think that spending your life telling stories is a pretty good way to spend the rest of your life. Scott, it's been thank pretty you. good so far. <laughs> yes, it has. Thank you, thank you so much for your time and sharing your wisdom with, uh, with us. Thank, thank you, it was a lot of fun. This has been Conversations with the Creators, sponsored by St. John's Graduate Program in Integrated Advertising Communications.
special thanks to all who helped create these podcasts, including Professor Audrey Siegel Mavora, Professor Edrix Fontanilla, Kevin James, and the advertising graduate assistants. Keep on ideating.